Welcome everyone to the EFA podcast series. Uh, today we are going to talk about regenerative agriculture and we're asking the question of whether that is actually a new concept. And so we hope that by the end of this little podcast, you have a better understanding of its origins, what are some of its key features, and maybe also some of its uh, limitations or how we should look at it in the modern world of farming, where a lot of uh, terminology is being used. So our guest today is Professor Ken Giller. Ken is a professor of plant production systems within the Wageningen Center for Agroecology and Systems Analysis at Wageningen University Research Center in the Netherlands. And he has a lot of, uh, or many decades of research experience in different parts of the world, particularly also in Africa. But he has also in recent years um, repeatedly written about some of the newer developments uh, that uh, we get exposed to, particularly when it comes to uh, very popular terms being used to describe uh, agronomic or agricultural practices that we hope one way or another will improve production systems uh, and some of their also environmental functions. Uh, and unfortunately, this is a topic that can also create a lot of confusion. And so my first uh, question when it comes to regenerative agriculture is to Ken, it has become very popular in recent years. There was a period, I think, in the 1980s already when it emerged. Then it kind of became quiet again. Can you tell us a bit more about where it actually originates from? Well, yeah, thanks, Akim, and thanks for the opportunity to talk today. I first heard the term regenerative agriculture in 2019 in the autumn when I was at a sustainable sourcing advisory board of Unilever, and uh, people in the meeting were starting talking about this. And I feel like... I should be inv informed about agriculture, of course. So I was really rather surprised. What is this? What are they talking about? So I came away from the meeting and we immediately, I got a research assistant to do a quick scan of the internet and, and to find, find some documents. And I, I was getting actually by reading them more and more confused. So we then wrote this paper that was published actually just two years ago, which is basically an agronomic perspective on regenerative agriculture, where we researched the history and we really went back into the literature. So yes, you're absolutely right. It emerged in early 1980s, really from the Rodale Institute in the United States, which is really the premier research organization for the organic movement. So it was very much associated with this, with, with really organic agriculture in its origins. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, what sometimes uh, also confuses people today because it's uh, now used in a much broader context. And there are many other popular terms uh, that are being used. And sometimes I feel like they all seem to describe similar things, you know, like uh, just mentioned organic farming, agroecology, good agricultural or agronomic practices, sustainable intensification, nature-based farming, or now even nature-positive farming. These are all terms that get thrown around. When we look at them from, a, let's say, a, a bit more evidence-based or scientific point of view, are these more or less similar things or the same things? Or is there a unique core of what constitutes regenerative agriculture? If so, what What, what might it be? What are some of the sort of key principles and practices in it that people promote? So, I mean, as part of this review, 
we obviously we delved into the scientific literature, but what was remarkable was that the scientific literature was actually very silent about regenerative agriculture. We could find very few papers. I mean, I think it was a handful, maybe 20 in total. And again, you know, often a term popping up and then disappearing, not really being used. But it had gained such prominence among a whole range of different actors, if you like, in the food system, the big companies. And when we're talking very broadly about, you know, I mean, Nestle, uh, Danone, uh, Unilever, General Mills, Kellogg's, uh, the supply companies, uh, Olam, huge number. But then also on the other side, the Nature Conservancy, you know, the biggest nature conservancy or, or organization in the United States, the World Wildlife Fund, Greenpeace, you know, so in a sense, you've got this rather strange amalgamation of, of what you might call unhappy bedfellows, yeah? the different types of organizations, all focusing around this one concept. So we, we tried then to look at, well, what are the fundaments of regenerative agriculture? And it really comes down very, very much to the soil. Everything in regenerative agriculture really revolves around soil. And, you know, you've got one organization, the Carbon Underground, which came out of the whole movement, if you like, for carbon sequestration in soil, something that you and I've talked about very often. And if you look at their website, they've got something like 20, 30, 40 organizations, research, NGOs, food processing, you name it, uh, organizations involved. Now, you asked the difficult question then, of course, which is how do we differentiate it from these other popular terms? And none of those popular terms actually has a good definition, really, apart from organic farming, which very often, I mean, it has a very positive side to it, but in a sense, its definition is, is usually based in what you can't do rather than what you can do. Yeah? Now, I can... Maybe I should go into a bit more detail then on principles and practices because um, on the soil side, it's really about soil conservation, building up soil carbon, closing nutrient cycles, and then sometimes things which I think are contradictory, which is it's talking about reducing inputs. And, and from my side, I think we'd all agree that if we're using highly toxic pesticides and the like, yes, we generally need to try and reduce their inputs as far as possible, you know, integrated pest and disease management, whatever. But where I work in Africa, and particularly, and this is really what got me, got me worried about regenerative agriculture, is everybody's talking about reducing inputs, but we can't do that in systems which are dysfunctional because they're so nutrient depleted and poor, we don't have production. That's not sustainable in my view either, yeah? So, I mean... I don't know if you want to come back on that, but I mean, we can go a bit more into some of the other terms, if you like. But yeah, we will. The yeah. core for me of regenerative agriculture is very much this, this core around the soil and particularly building soil carbon is, is absolutely central to that. I mean, one, one thing that uh, confuses me always a bit is um, when you look up uh, the term regenerate in a, in a dictionary of an English language, for example, you know, it will often tell you that the meaning of it is to restore something to its original strengths or properties. 
which sounds good, but it, it has also some implications for agriculture that maybe are not of the right kind. So, so, so for example, does it mean that we want to restore a soil back to what it used to be when it was not yet used for agriculture? under its natural state, you know, and when it was not meant to produce large amounts of food and therefore it, it had very different properties from the properties that it needs to have now to, to produce that food in a sustainable and productive manner. Yeah? So when you, you alluded already to soil health as a, as a major stated goal of regenerative agriculture, and that's great. We all want healthier soils, you know, but, is sort of restoring a soil to its original conditions really what we want or or how should we better phrase that? Well, I, th I think this is one of the areas that uh, there's been some very good critique written about because, of course, many parts of the world, the original um, soil would either be a, a prairie soil, you know, something under, we're thinking about the United States, the Midwest or whatever, which would have a huge accumulation of carbon over under grassland for a long period of time, or in many other parts of the world, it would be a forest soil. Now, particularly if some people have argued we need to shift the microbial community back to more, what it would be under the natural state. But in a forest soil, basically the organic matter inputs tend to be highly lignified, wood or woody leaves, and low in nutrients. So what you have then is a fungal-dominated microbial biomass, for instance. So it's a fungal-dominated soil. And people are arguing now that we should do that in agriculture. But that doesn't really make much sense, because in agriculture, of course, we want soils, we want nutrients to cycle through soils and to become available for plants. And if we want to do that, then we'd want a more bacterial-dominated uh, biomass. So, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely on the nail there. Putting up nature or different forms of nature as somehow the ideal for agriculture often doesn't make sense. I'd like to add one other point on that as well. You know, the amounts of carbon stored often under natural undisturbed vegetation are also larger than they are under agriculture. But again, using that as a reference point for agriculture and thinking that we could build soil carbon back to that level when we're using soils for growing crops in a, uh, routinely, I think that's another, another pipe dream. And that's not going to happen because it's simply not possible. So I think the idea of trying to understand what we can learn from nature is very powerful. And I, but I think as well, we can argue, and there are some good papers on this, that, that we design agriculture, of course, for producing food and other crops. And that's something that nature doesn't do. So there are many ways we can actually do better than nature, I would argue, within our agricultural systems. And mimicking nature would be, in many ways, would be re retrogressive. Yeah, I think we can we can take many inspirations uh, from nature, and that's where also certain agroecological principles can certainly be of great value. You know, but as you say, we shouldn't mimic it. Um, we can find numerous examples worldwide where trying to restore, if you wish, a soil back to what it once was um, uh, under very different conditions would 
be the very wrong thing to do if you want to continue feeding this world. And so I think it's largely more about optimizing the soil functions through the appropriate ergonomic practices. And if some of those involve the same practices that are also being promoted on the regenerative agriculture, like cover crops or better crop rotations or less tillage, then that's great, you know, but it's not the recipe for everything and everywhere. Before you continue, could I, could I just uh, come back on that? Because I think uh, you trigger another thought there. Because I, I fully agree that if we look actually at the principles and practices behind regenerative agriculture, an, an awful lot of what people are proposing as regenerative would come under the general heading for me of, of good agricultural practice. Things like you know maintaining soil cover, preventing soil erosion, using a good diverse rotation in the field, using your nutrients efficiently so that we're preventing spillover and losses, uh, ensuring good moisture capture and use. I mean, many things that we would use, which would re really come under the heading of, of good agricultural practice. And in, in many ways then, well, that's great if that's what people are going to do under regenerative agriculture. But I suppose the big question is then, you know, what, why did we need the term? But anyway, maybe we'll come back to that. So there is another central uh, goal, I think, embedded in regenerative agriculture, and that is uh, reversing loss of biodiversity. Um, but do the actual practices that are being recommended there actually provide much concrete guidance and results for that? What have you found in your review of that? Well, although it's put there very much as a as a highlighted as a topic, actually it's it's maybe more difficult to address. And I think for that reason you don't see as much attention to it actually in the practices and, and in the literature that surrounds the, the discussion on regenerative agriculture. Certainly nowhere as, uh, near as much as you, see, you have on soil. Now we can think of biodiversity at three levels really, one at the level of genetic diversity of genes and at that level of course having um, diverse crops or crop genotypes can have a real advantage we know in the field and, and that can be, can be good. We can think of it at the farm level, the farming system level, and I think there's a lot to do there with good rotation. We mentioned that already. There's a big push as well for mixed cropping, for more intercropping, which I think has advantages under certain situations, but can often be much more, much harder to manage for farmers. And then we have, in addition, biodiversity at the landscape scale. So that's uh, the farms within a broader landscape and their impacts. Now, that's when it comes a bit more difficult because obviously we need to understand the interactions between farms and natural habitats. And then we come to these questions there which are about land sparing and land sharing. And if regenerative agriculture is going to end up pushing for lower yields, then you could argue you need a larger land area. And overall, that would be bad for biodiversity. Now, I've been in a number of discussions with people, particularly around the Green Deal in Europe, where they're really talking about potentially reducing productivity, agricultural productivity. And maybe that's needed in places like the Netherlands, where you have a real nitrogen surplus, and we need to do something about that. But if we don't, at the same time, reduce our consumption, 
then what we'll end up with is simply exporting our ecological footprint to other parts of the world because we'll carry on consuming as much and then potentially transferring that agricultural production to areas in the world where it's maybe done with much less productivity and with more negative environmental effects. So we're potentially pushing our, we're doing sort of holier than thou here in Europe, we're doing much better. But actually what we're simply doing is exporting our problems to other parts of the world. So I think there's a real dilemma there that we have to think broader than just the local field or the local farm if we're really thinking about things like biodiversity and broader ecological footprints. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we may be making things even worse. Uh, and, uh, so without wanting it, uh, if, uh, so we may be on one side creating nice green biodiverse landscapes in one part of the world because we have the means to do it, but then expand agricultural area and chop down more forests in other parts of the world, you know, which is uh, having a much bigger impact on biodiversity. But now you alluded already to the fact that many large NGOs and particularly also many companies or even particularly food companies um, have uh, in recent years really come behind the regenerative agricultural movement. And many of them have also announced ambitious targets and investments for promoting it through their own uh, supply chain. I read recently just one on one company website that they want to spread regenerative farming practices across 7 million acres worldwide, which would be approximately equal to their entire agricultural footprint of that company. And this would also eliminate 3 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions by the end of the decade. So these are um, obviously uh, quite some claims. So, so why do you think they're doing this? Why are they so keen on this? Because we see this now in many industry sectors in agriculture and food. And isn't there also some danger of greenwashing embedded in all that? I think this is really one of the most difficult areas. I've worked alongside a number of these companies and continue to do so. And I, I do believe that, that their aims are a very honest and, and uh, clear aims that they want to be able to make sure that their agriculture, the sourcing of the products that they're using it, is done in the right way. I think they do that for different reasons. And, and one of them would be that the long-term profits of the companies, I think you can show it, it, it actually links very much to their brands and to their, their public image, of course. At the same time, if they're going to continue producing in the long term, they need a sustainable supply. So they need to be able to make sure that the, the supply of um, raw products, if you like, commodities that they use in their products is, is continuing. I think there's a huge challenge out there for all of us to go towards uh, zero carbon economies. And, and really the latest uh, IPCC reports are, are really alarming. I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult to stay within 1.5 degrees temperature rise. And it's probably likely going towards two already. I mean, I think the storms and the, the problems that we see coming from that are really frightening. And I think companies are also very aware that they need to reduce their, their, their negative impacts on climate change and head towards, if they can, towards a zero carbon. I think the big problem there, you know, for instance, in I'm, I'm working with Nestle on, on coffee and cocoa, 
and they and other companies can show that 70 to 90% of the emissions in, in any of their products, when they do a life cycle analysis, comes from the production phase. Now, it's going to be very, very hard to actually make that zero carbon. I think we can do a lot to move in that direction, but without insetting or offsetting, you know, either growing more trees within the farm or, or paying for offsetting carbon, it's going to be very, very hard to go for zero carbon, plus the fact if you go for offsetting, it's not potentially permanent. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you can plant trees, but if they then get cut down, I mean, we're not then in a, in a good place. So reducing our emissions, uh, particularly greenhouse gas emissions from the use of nitrogen, I think are absolutely critical. I think there is a danger of greenwashing. But I think that most of the companies are very aware of being criticized for greenwashing, and they don't want to, if you like, invest in all of this work for no purpose. So I do think there's, a, there's an honest attempt to try and do things better. And, uh, you know, I hope very much that, that those uh, honest attempts are going to be are going to be realized yeah, in, in the future. Yeah, good. And I think uh, this is a, a very good uh, note to end this podcast. Uh, we, on one side, obviously uh, need this this kind of new thinking towards a more sustainability-driven uh, business. But on the other side, of course, it also needs to be based on realistic and uh, science-based uh, uh, targets and uh, investments and practices that then lead to the right kind of outcomes. Yeah. So we hope that uh, many companies uh, will base their strategies on that. We encourage them to seek more engagement and also help from scientists to clarify their own uh, position and strategy. You know? and mainly also to avoid making mistakes in this space. You know? Absolutely. If I could make one, one last plea, working with Unilever in their Sustainable Sourcing Advisory Board, They have what they call the Sustainable Agriculture Code. And that's a code of practice which is very far-reaching, covering nearly every operation on farm. And the aim within that code is that every supplier in their chain has to, every farmer has to sign up to it. But it, it's actually a code around always doing better on everything, nutrient management, soil management, biodiversity, integrated pest management, whatever. And you never actually reach a goal because you can always do better. Now, I think having a practice-based approach like that in which people make a plan, they show that they're working within their plan to improve the way that they farm for both production and the environment is actually the best way to go and much better than us trying to say, uh, put in a set of rules and tell people you've got to meet, meet a certain threshold because then people will tick boxes and they'll carry on doing things that aren't so good. And I think this idea of always working positively in, in trying to improve what you're doing is, is a very good guidance and, and one that I'd like to support. Yeah, I, I would fully support this. I mean, this is the way forward. Things can always be improved. I think that's a much better approach than focusing on very specific few things or even banning certain things, you know, which sometimes may have opposite effects. Thank you uh, for joining us, uh, uh, Ken, and we'll see you back uh, for our next episode in due time.
Yeah, thanks very much for the conversation, uh, Akim.